0: September 27, 2007. In Sydney, Australia, the night air is filled with the usual sights and sounds. The stars light up the sky and crickets fill the air with their endless chirps. On a quiet rural road in the Waratah Nature Reserve, a green Toyota Corolla is parked with no one inside and no signs of life. The car belonged to 20-year-old Matthew John Levison, who had last been seen four days earlier leaving a popular Sydney nightclub But no one has seen or heard from him since. Where was Matthew? What happened to this bright, confident young man? Police had been alerted, but their task would not be an easy one. It would be a significant period of time to get to the bottom of Matthew's disappearance. Welcome to the Beyond Evil podcast, where we discuss and dissect the most compelling true crime cases from all over the world. Some are disturbing, some are baffling others, simply pure evil. Before we begin, we would like to send our sincere condolences to the friends and family of Matthew John Levison, who was taken from this world at such a young age. Matthew John Levison was born on the 12th of December, 1986. His parents, Mark and Faye, were both loving people who gave their all to their children. They gave them the best care and the best start in life they could. Matthew was a very confident person who didn't really concern himself with what other people thought of him. He just wanted to live his best life. When Matthew came out as gay during his teenage years, his parents weren't surprised at all. Nor did they judge their son; they loved him just as much for who he was. Matthew enjoyed a great home and social life. He was well liked by everyone who met him and a known face around the Sydney night scene. In 2006, Matthew met Michael Atkins. Atkins was a black belt in jujitsu who had previously run his own martial arts dojo. When he met Matthew, he was employed as a security guard at the Sutherland Sports Club. As stated, Matthew's parents had no issues with the fact that he was gay, but they did have a few concerns surrounding Michael. After they met, the two men quickly entered into a relationship. The concern for Matthew's parents wasn't that they were in a relationship, it was the age gap. Michael was 45, 25 years older than Matthew. Now, this doesn't make him a bad person, of course, but deep down, Faye and Mark would have preferred Matthew be with someone closer to his own age. Michael came across as a bit of a Peter Pan-type character. Despite his age, he got on well with all of Matthew's friends and seemed to enjoy the company of younger people and living a younger person's lifestyle. Michael, of course, was born into a different generation when homosexuality wasn't necessarily something you announced and certainly wasn't as socially acceptable as it is today. Even at 45 years old, he still hadn't told his mother that he was a gay man which might give us a bit of insight into his upbringing. It was widely assumed that he had spent many years repressing who he was and feared coming out as gay. But now, in different times, he was able to be himself and was therefore making up for those lost years. But regardless, the relationship continued and the couple were well-suited. They regularly went on nights out together and were known for partying hard until five or six in the morning at Ark, a nightclub in Sydney. But neither of the men were saints. Despite being well-liked, they did do some things which they shouldn't. Before going to the Ark nightclub, Matthew's car was regularly seen parked down an alleyway just down the road from the club. The couple would blast loud music from the car using Matthew's very powerful speakers that took up the whole trunk of his car. They would sit in the car, taking drugs, and drinking before going on to party. There was another reason why they parked the car in the exact same spot every time. It was so people would know where to come to buy drugs from them. On September 22, 2007, just before midnight, Matthew and Michael were seen on CCTV entering the ARC nightclub as usual. The same CCTV camera captured them as they left the club around 2.20 a.m., now in the early morning hours of the 23rd. This was not unusual, the pair would normally be out much, much later than this. Matthew was due to be back at work at a call center on Tuesday the 25th of September, where he worked Tuesday through Saturdays, but he failed to show up. Despite his other occupation outside of work, he was well thought of at his legitimate job amongst his colleagues and managers. He would always turn up to work, and if for any reason he couldn't, he never failed to let them know. For this reason, when he didn't show up or call, the company was concerned for Matthew. They immediately called his parents as they were listed as his emergency contacts. Matthew's brother answered the phone and told them that they would try to locate him. He then called his mother, Faye, who then contacted Matthew's boyfriend, Michael, who insisted that Matthew had gotten up and gone to work as usual that morning. Something didn't make sense, but it wasn't entirely out of character. In August of 2006, Matthew had been reported missing to the police after not making contact with his parents for over a week. But that time, there was no need to panic. Matthew had moved in with Michael, and they had simply forgotten to tell his family, leaving them panicked for no reason. This may be the reason why the family didn't fly into a panic too much this time. They did try to call his cell phone numerous times, but without any success. After the incident in 2006, though, Matthew had seen the panic he caused and promised to always stay in contact with his family in the future. Michael told them it was probably nothing, and he was sure Matthew would call them back as soon as he got a chance. Matthew's parents, Mark and Faye, were not satisfied with Michael's answer at all. They demanded that he come with them to the police station and file a missing persons report. Michael did agree to go with the family and quickly tried to play down Matthew's disappearance. He said that they had gotten into a small argument over leaving the nightclub early, but it was nothing too serious, and the couple had gone home together. They did spend the afternoon Sunday lounging around their home together until that evening when Matthew decided he wanted to go out to the Ark nightclub again. Michael said that he didn't want to, so Matthew had gone without him, and he hadn't seen him since. This was apparently not out of character for Matthew, as he didn't work on Mondays anyway. But remember, Michael said earlier that Matthew had woken up and gone to work as normal on Tuesday morning. How could he know that if he hadn't seen Matthew since Sunday evening? Two days later, Matthew's car was found on the edge of the nature reserve by a public toilet block. The toilet block was well known as a local hangout for gay men at night. Police searched the car and found no sign of Matthew, just a few food wrappers scattered around the interior of the vehicle. Upon further inspection, a receipt was found in the trunk for a local hardware store called Bunnings Warehouse. The items purchased were a mattock, which is a trenching and digging tool, and some duct tape, both of which purchased on the afternoon of Sunday the 23rd of September 2007, the exact time the couple was supposedly at home together recovering from the night before. Although police didn't know at this point, there was a much larger item missing. The huge speakers in Matthew's car had also been taken. By this point, it was clear that something was very wrong. No sign of Matthew, speakers missing, a receipt for an axe-type weapon, and duct tape. Police quickly came to the conclusion that some sort of foul play may have taken place. Michael was asked if he had been to Bunnings Warehouse and had purchased the items listed on the receipt, to which he replied no, but law enforcement wasn't buying it. They went straight around to Michael and Matthew's home and conducted a search and seized Michael's phone. Michael, clearly rattled by the obvious police suspicions, decided to speak to a lawyer, who advised him to not speak to the police any further. Police managed to trace the data from Matthew's phone as well. The last communication from him was a text message sent to a friend around 3.30 a.m. on Sunday morning, the 23rd of September, approximately one hour after Matthew and Michael had been seen on CCTV, leaving the club, but nothing since. This made the police question whether Matthew had actually gone out to ARC on Sunday evening at all. After all, if he was going out, surely he would have called or messaged people to make sure that at least one of his friends would be out at the same time, but apparently not. There were some interesting messages sent between Matthew and Michael while they were still in the nightclub. Michael sent the message to Matthew stating, I've said I'm sorry three times. Michael claimed to not remember sending the message or having any argument inside the club. Police also uncovered something that might seem trivial at first, but it could also be seen as suspicious. During their search, they also found an empty shoebox with a receipt still inside. Michael had gone and purchased a new pair of shoes on Monday, the 24th of September, while Matthew was missing. Police wanted to see the old pair, but Michael said he couldn't remember what he had done with them. Michael had been texting Matthew since he got the call from family, asking him to come home, telling him that he loved him and to call his mom as soon as possible. But the situation was becoming more suspicious by the minute. Police, now extremely suspicious of Michael, conducted a search of his car, and guess what they found under the passenger's side floor mat? Matthew's phone. The net was tightening, and Michael was running out of explanations. After viewing the CCTV of ARC nightclub in further detail, police made another discovery. As mentioned, Matthew and Michael had been captured leaving the club together just after 2 a.m. But strangely, Michael was captured re-entering the club by himself at about 3.15 a.m. So where was Matthew? Michael had said previously that they had gone home together. As if that wasn't bad enough for Michael, the police went to Bunnings Warehouse, where the duct tape and mattock had been purchased. Somewhere, Michael stated that he had never been. But, captured clear as day on CCTV, was Michael purchasing the items from the store, including the mattock which he was carrying in his left hand as he walked past a camera. With just a little good old-fashioned detective work, police managed to torpedo virtually everything Michael had said to them. The pair didn't go home together in the early morning hours of Sunday because Michael went back into the nightclub. The couple didn't wake up together on Tuesday because Michael said he hadn't seen Matthew since Sunday. There also wasn't any evidence for Matthew going out on Sunday evening either. Michael now said that he had fallen asleep on Sunday evening around 8.30 and then woke up around 1 a.m. when he saw that Matthew wasn't there. He assumed that he had gone to the nightclub because he may have still been annoyed at having to leave earlier the night before. None of Michael's statements really stood up to anyone. To be fair to the police, they did try to pursue every possible scenario. For example, could Matthew have been robbed? His expensive speakers had been stolen and his car was found next to a popular gay night spot. But as they continued to investigate, it was clear that all roads led to Michael. Finally, on August 2, 2008, police arrested and charged Michael Atkins with the murder of Matthew Levison. But despite all the statements that Michael had given, which simply didn't make any sense, After an eight-week jury trial, Michael was acquitted of all the charges. This had been blamed on what some describe as a fatal flaw in the Australian legal system, which runs very similar to that of Canada and the U.S. Pre-trial hearings are used by lawyers to determine what evidence can and cannot be used against a person. In this case, one of the main pieces of evidence, Michael's visit to the warehouse and the CCTV footage of him buying the axe and duct tape, were excluded from the trial. This was granted because at the time, Michael said that he wasn't aware that he was a suspect in the case when he denied visiting the warehouse. His defense was that if he had known of the police suspicions, he would have come clean about going there. Unfortunately for the prosecution, this was vital video evidence that uh, Michael not only lied to law enforcement that he was, in fact, covering something up. Combine that with the fact that there wasn't any proof that Matthew was actually dead because there wasn't a body, the result was the case fell apart. The family, of course devastated by the court case and its collapse, were determined not to give up on finding their son and brother. Every weekend, post-trial, the family would head to the site where Matthew's car had been found with shovels to try to find Matthew's body. Sadly, their efforts were in vain. However, this was, understandably, one very committed family, and they were not giving up. They pressed and pressed for an inquest to be held into Matthew's disappearance, something that is rarely granted after the chief suspect had been acquitted. But in 2015, their persistence finally paid off. On January 15th of 2015, the inquest was granted. This is where some might say the Australian legal system has the upper hand over places like the US and the UK. An inquest in Australia is practically a retrial without any charges. It's kind of a loophole where someone is almost being tried for the same crime twice, but without the actual charges, and of course there can be no punishment. In this instance, all evidence can and will be considered. The aim is to rule on the circumstances and cause of death so the coroner can make an informed decision. During the inquest, although not facing any criminal charges, Michael was summoned to testify again. But this time he took a slightly different tack, denying that it was him caught on the CCTV footage re-entering the nightclub at 3.15 a.m. when he said he was at home with Matthew. This also cast doubt on the CCTV footage from Bunnings Warehouse, saying that he didn't think it was him on those images buying the mattock and duct tape. Unfortunately, without more clear CCTV footage or a witness to clarify his statements either way, it was difficult to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Michael was involved. The inquest heard the last time anyone had made contact with Matt was at 3.30 a.m. after he left the nightclub. Matthew received a text asking him if he was okay. He replied 15 minutes later saying, No, Mike's having one of his f***ing cries and he won't let me stay at the club. The messages kept going back and forth for a while until around 3.40 a.m., 25 minutes after Michael had been seen re-entering the club. All the inquest knew for certain was that texts had been coming back from Matthew's phone. That didn't necessarily mean, of course, that Matthew was the one sending those messages. Let's not forget, his phone was found in Michael's car in the floorboard, under a rug. Although it couldn't be proven, it was suspected that Michael— while back at the club, could have been using Matthew's phone to text people, pretending to be him. The alternative is that Matthew was alive and well, texting from his phone at home. But he was an adult, so why, if he was so desperate to go back out, didn't he go back out to the club with Michael, or on his own? Strangely, Michael stuck to his story that the pair of them were at home together. But even those details weren't consistent. He stated that Matthew was out of it, but then also said that he didn't need any help getting out of the car or getting into their apartment, so surely he couldn't have been that bad. Michael also couldn't decide if Matthew had slept on the couch or in their bed. If Michael's version of events were to be believed, Matthew would have spent the whole night going from the couch to the bed and back repeatedly. Something still just didn't add up. When asked about their relationship, Michael made it out to be a bed of roses, He admitted that they bickered from time to time like most couples, but nothing out of the ordinary. But when friends and colleagues were asked the same questions, they painted a different picture. One colleague of Matthew's described how he was very unhappy with Michael, describing him as a bully. His friends had reportedly told him that it was time for him to start standing up to Michael, and Matthew had admitted that he even wanted to end the relationship altogether. Matthew had apparently felt controlled and smothered by Michael. One incident that was described when Matthew went out with his friends to the ARC nightclub and didn't invite Michael, Matthew was spreading his wings and meeting new people, something that Michael apparently didn't like. On this night, Michael followed Matthew and the friends in his car, then joined them at ARC. Despite being unwanted, he stayed there keeping an eye on Matthew and what he was getting up to. Michael's alleged controlling behavior could be attributed to the new facts that came to light. During the initial investigation, police had checked all of Michael's devices and discovered that when Matthew wasn't around, he himself had been having relations with other people via webcam. He even met different people in person for one-night stands, telling them that he was 35 instead of 45 and that he was in an open relationship. He had even used Matthew's computer to go on similar sites looking for a hookup on the Monday when Matthew had gone missing, clearly showing little concern for his missing partner. But when asked about this usage, Michael couldn't remember. Michael's, uh, let's call them strange recollection of events, continued even more. He told the inquest that he had no knowledge of the area where Matthew's car had been found. This was also proven to be a lie. Michael had worked for a vending machine company which managed several machines in that vicinity, so he could have been there many times in the past. Police also eventually found Matthew's large speaker from his car in the couple's garage. But once again, Michael was unable to remember why they were there or how they had gotten there. Peter, one of Matthew's brothers, said openly that he believes the speakers needed to be removed to make room for Matthew's body so it could be hidden in the trunk. He believes that Michael didn't want to use his own car for obvious reasons, leaving any traces of blood or DNA. Police always believed that Michael was guilty beyond any reasonable doubt, and the inquest sparked fresh enthusiasm into their pursuit of justice for Matthew's family. As a result, on November the 10th, 2016, law enforcement launched a new search to find Matthew's body. This time, they would throw everything they had at it. By this point, Michael had taken a rather desperate new line to explain Matthew's disappearance, He said he believed Matthew was alive and possibly living in Thailand, something that the family and police took virtually no notice of. Michael's various versions of events had more holes in it than Swiss cheese by this point, so why would they take anything he said seriously? Police continued to apply the pressure to Michael, questioning him repeatedly in hopes that as they got a little more firm with their investigation— he might let something go. He could be forced into a mistake, especially if they got close to finding Matthew's body. But in an unexpected move during questioning, Michael had one last card to play. Seeing that the net was tightening, he told police that he had suspicions as to the location of Matthew's body, but didn't know for sure. He requested immunity from prosecution with regards to perjury or contempt of court if he shared his suspicions with them. Although Michael didn't know it, despite the best efforts of the police search teams, they hadn't gotten any closer to finding Matthew's body. As a result, they agreed to his immunity on the condition of telling them where the body was located. Even more tragically, any deal of this nature had to have the consent of Matthew's family. Reluctantly, but obviously desperate for closure at this point, Mark and Faye signed off on the deal. Michael had now told another version of events. He told the investigators that Matthew had died in their bedroom. He assumed it to be from an overdose because there was a large bottle of GHB next to the bed. Michael said he was shocked and upset. Matthew, although a regular user of recreational drugs, was also very careful not to take too much— When he saw the body, Michael knew how it looked, and he felt he had no choice but to hide it. He took the police to the Royal National Park near where the car had been found and showed them the exact spot where he had buried Matthew's body. But despite this information, another problem arose. After eight days of digging, the search had to be called off. There was no sign of Matthew's body. From the police perspective, it wasn't for the want of trying. They had covered over 4,000 square meters and had found nothing. On May the 22nd, 2017, police brought Michael back to the park and asked him to recreate his movements for that night. They even brought in a hypnotist to relax Michael and try to make him think more clearly. Michael said he might have been closer to the road where he had parked Matthew's car, and the search resumed. Finally, on May 31, 2017, in the last hour of daylight, and after another week of digging, police dug up a large cabbage palm, and under that plant, they found the remains of Matthew Levison. By this point, it had been nearly ten years since Matthew had gone missing. The body, by now, had undergone natural decomposition. There had also been potential damage caused by the excavators. As a result, Matthew's death was recorded as unresolved. No post-mortem could determine if any injury sustained had occurred pre- or post-death at this time. The coroner did state, however, given the inconsistencies in Michael's statements throughout the 10-year investigation, he probably played a part in Matthew's death. Matthew's family are adamant to this day that he was killed by Michael possibly smothered in his bed, but obviously that is more of a theory and cannot be proven. They may have finally achieved some closure with the location of their son's body and being able to give him a proper burial, in their words, to bring him home, but this doesn't stop the hurt they feel every day knowing that the man who they and law enforcement believe killed Matthew is still allowed to walk free on the same streets as them. If it was Michael who killed Matthew he will never face justice. Matthew's family only signed off on the immunity deal with Michael because they felt they had no other choice at that time. They just wanted their son back. Nobody can or has questioned the commitment of the police to get justice for Matthew and his family, but the question has to be asked could a more extensive initial search for the body have yielded better results? After all, Michael's evidence after his immunity was granted didn't really help investigators very much. It was only at the eleventh hour that they found the body by a process of elimination. Michael just led them to different places without results, something he had been doing for some time, and that they had been doing some time themselves. The immunity was only agreed to if the body was found. But there could be an argument to say that Michael, being involved, didn't help police. So maybe his immunity could be null and void. But sadly, that is not going to happen now. As always, here at Beyond Evil, we put the victims of these crimes first. Matthew John Levison was just 20 years old when he died. He had barely started living at all. Using recreational drugs, though bad, is something that many people his age do when experimenting. Matthew had a very good, loving upbringing. His family loved him and his friends did as well. English writer Charles Dickens penned the words, If you want to know the measure of a man, count his friends. In Matthew's case, those words couldn't be more justified. He had a great social network and a great work life, which would have surely carried on had he been given a chance. Although it can't be proven in a court of law, it is the belief of investigators, family, and friends that Matthew was killed by his controlling partner, Michael Atkins, who tried to portray their relationship as perfect, but in actual fact, through the testimony of Matthew's friends, we know that wasn't the case. We will never know what truly happened in the early hours of the 23rd of September 2007. All we know is the last time Matthew was seen alive, he was walking out of his favorite nightclub and was never seen alive again. We can only hope that his friends and family can take some solace in the fact that the body was eventually found and returned home where he belongs. We wish all of those who knew Matthew the very best for the future and hope that they can rebuild their lives in the best way possible. His parents can live safe in the knowledge that they raised a caring, friendly young man who was much loved by others. His friends can hopefully remember the good times they had with him and cherish those memories. Rest in peace, Matthew John Levison. If you found this story compelling, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen and leave a five-star review if you would like to show your support. Also, don't forget to hit the notification bell in order to stay up to date each time we reveal a new shocking case. Until next time, stay safe and keep your eyes peeled. You never know what's lurking in the shadow.